Uh, cool. All right. Well, Edward, thank you so much. I think we're good sure. for now. I'm going to stop sharing okay. my screen. That feels like a yep. thing. Feel free to DM me if you have questions. Or dungeon Master you? Cool. Yep. Dungeon. Please Dungeon Master me. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> Are you here filling Tom's shoes? <laughs> of course I am. He's here in spirit and in jest. So. Okay. But the, the most important thing that you remember. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's just mean. That's a mean thing that he did there. That was amazing. I'm going to slack him to let him know. So that was amazing. It really worked on me, too. I'm like, no. Oh, he's yeah, a, he's totally a jokester. Yeah. Oh, good work, Edward. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Chris. And I'm Steph. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot, hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So what's new with you, Steph? Uh, recently, I saw that there are some new commands that are making their way into Git, which is exciting. Or actually, they may already be in Git. I think they're in Git 2.23. And we think that's out in the world now? I think so. I actually can't remember if it's um, Git 2.22 that's been released or if Git 2.23 is still a release candidate. But either way, if it's out in the world or soon to be out in the world, I'm excited for the two new commands that they're adding. They're adding the two new commands, git switch and git restore to help bring some clarity around how we currently use checkout because checkout has kind of a lot of overloaded functionality. So if you want to switch to a new branch that uses checkout, if you want to restore a file to a previous version that also uses checkout. So it's a bit confusing. So they've added the two new commands. So if you want to switch to a new branch, that's now git switch and then the branch name. And then if you want to restore a file to a previous version, that is now git restore file name. So that's that's really cool. I'm excited for that to land. I feel like that's just a really nice, meaningful step for git to take. Git is simultaneously probably one of my favorite tools, one of my most trusted tools. But the only way I ever got comfortable with it was by learning what's under the hood and like what goes on on the inside because the command line interface is inscrutable at best and checkout is the worst offender of that so i'm really glad to see that they are splitting it up and giving proper names to things naming it's uh hard it turns out (laughs) yeah it's certainly nice to have it also made me wonder what other newer features i've missed out on because i haven't really paid attention to git release notes the way i do for like rails or ruby or any other languages and frameworks that i care about so i'm wondering if there's some other cool commands that i'm also not aware of but i happen to see these thanks to some folks on twitter that were talking about them yeah, it's interesting. It gets a tool where I'm like, I'm actually fine if it stays the same forever now. Like, I, I kind of want there to not be <laughs> like updates to Git. It's such a foundational tool that I would almost rather it being, even if it's imperfect, have it being static and trustable and, you know, exist forever. And Git has always had really nice extensibility. So you can make your own versions of these commands and either have aliases or scripts, which I have a mess ton of at this point in my life. But yeah, it's interesting. It's in contrast to other things. I sort of like the maybe no new features ever, but these are nice. They're basically just aliases that they're shipping as part of the core CLI as far as I can tell. So I guess I'm okay with that. Yeah. And I think from most of the stuff I saw for the updates, they don't seem to have formal release notes, but in the GitHub repo that I was looking at, it seems like what you're looking for is mostly improvements, but not necessarily new features. So yeah, that's something that I I noticed that I thought would be fun to chat about oh and also you and i we just finished a raffle palooza we sure did uh we happen to actually work on the same team so we only have one project to talk about although we did two implementations <laughs> so in a sense we can compare and contrast 
Yeah, we were same team, but not really same team. You're pretty competitive, I've discovered. What? No. <laughs> or a little. I don't know. Maybe. Which I find very funny because you're such a collaborative person. And then Raffle Palooza time came and you were very competitive, Chris, which was a lot of fun. Well, so in my defense, I felt like your team had outsized advantages. And yeah, no, I guess I'm just describing competitiveness. Never mind. I'm just being competitive. <laughs> And I didn't want to lose, so I tried. Oh, no, that's just being competitive. Never mind. Uh, but we should probably back up and explain a little bit of, I think in the previous episode, you talked about Ralph Palooza a little bit. So there's some context on that for anyone that listened. But uh, yeah, it's our annual holiday hackathon. And so we chose a project. And uh, do you want to describe the project that we ended up working on? So we were building a game in Elm, which was exciting for me for two reasons. Because one, I really wanted to work in Elm. And then two, I've never built a game before. So that was really exciting. And I feel like I've earned this new developer badge that I hadn't earned before. Uh, so the game we were building, it came as a recommendation from Edward Lovell. The name of the game is called Reaction. I've never played that game, but he showed us a demo. And there's essentially obstacles on the board. And there are, what are they called? Cells. We, we called them different things than you, so it's funny that the nomenclature was different between our teams. But I think we called them projectiles, or they could be like floaters, or I don't know. They're little things flying around the board. Yes, but the projectiles are surfacing or shooting across the board. And then there are certain obstacles or certain particles on that board that then as they get hit by a particle, they increment in their count. And then once they get to four, then they'll explode and release four new particles. Or I kept thinking of them as like little fireballs that would shoot out. So then you rack up more points. So it's a little bit like pinball where like you're trying to hit certain obstacles with the pinball. And then if you're lucky and if you hit the right one or if you get enough points then it releases another ball for you. So then you've got two in the game. But yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. And I was impressed to like how quickly both of our teams built the game. So there were five of us total that were interested in working on this game. And there wasn't a really great way to streamline so that we could work in collaboration, all five of us on this. So we split off into two teams with one person that was working on the animations for both of us. That was a lot of fun. Do you want to dive into the details as to how and how it went for you and Greg? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and actually, if anyone wants to look at it, I don't know that it'll be hosted there forever, but I have the version that we built hosted at reaction.c2me.com. I figured it would just be fun to put it up on the internet. I actually just really like the game as well. Uh, so I've been continuing to work on the game and iterate on it in my spare time as well. And partly because it was so much fun writing the Elm. It was just a fan. So my goal coming into Palooza, the structure of it is we did, you know, talk about a bunch of projects and we have to sort of draft a team and the requirement being that we have at least three people on the team. Some years I'll come into it and I have a project in mind. Some years I have another goal. And this year my entire goal was just to work with Elm. I just wanted to spend more time with that. Ideally, I wanted to pair with another developer, which was sort of a given in Palooza, but the really the core idea for me was working in Elm. And uh, I lived up to the hype, at least the hype that I have in my head around Elm. The practice of like building out features, and then we, we realized the first day that we got the fundamental data model wrong, like it was just backwards and incorrect. And so we just went on this big refactoring kick and fundamentally changed every... <laughs> when we looked at the diff, it was like a 250-line file that had 247 minus and 302 additions after the like refactoring branch. So it was a heavy refactor, but Elm just guided us through that whole experience. And I'm really interested to continue exploring Elm and figure out how it can fit as part of larger strategies and you know where does it work well and then what are the complicated community aspects and things like that because there's there's a lot of subtleties to picking a language and building on top of a framework and things like that. 
Yeah, I think there was a particular bug that Josh and I managed to avoid that's something that you and Greg ran into. There was the data structures, but then there was a bug where as I was pairing with Josh, he was implementing the X and Y coordinates and he gave them a type. So they were wrapped as like an X type and a Y type with an int. And I initially asked him, I was like, oh, that's that's super specific instead of just having it be an int. And he guided me through his explanation of like, well, if we give it a type, we can make sure we never accidentally switch our X and Y coordinates because we always know which one is an X and which one is a Y. And then it was later that we were chatting with you and Greg and catching up on how your progress was going that you had mentioned at one point you had the X and the Y coordinates reversed. And it was just very confusing to figure out why everything was happening in the weird way on the board. That's a good reminder of why the types in the Elm are so incredibly helpful and it's good to leverage them. I feel a little bit like you're putting me on blast right now for uh, the bugs that were in our version of the app. But it does tell a very good no. story. No, 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 it's fine. Uh, it's interesting. It okay. actually happened twice during the process that we were building it out that somehow we got X and Y swapped. And it happened two different times. And I think we ended up looking into it. And the time where it first manifested, I think we actually had it wrong three times. But it's like X became Y, Y became X. And then it happened again. And then it happened again, which has the effect of making X seem like Y. So sort of like inverting, inverting, inverting. And so we solved it in one of those places, which got us back to good. But I think it was two incorrect versions that were now canceling each other out. It was really interesting because that sort of thing of, of wrapping a primitive type like an integer may seem like type overkill. Like, oh, you're just going too far with the types. Like you're just exploring that because it's fun for you. But it, it, we found it so practical. So it, it was really interesting to see the two implementations and have yours have that. And you'd be like, oh, that's interesting. And then us immediately feel the pain of not having that. Yeah, to be fair, I would have totally made the same mistake or I totally would have done the same thing. But I had Josh Clayton on my team. So <laughs> that was the, the guiding difference. Yes, that is one of those unfair advantages that I was speaking of earlier. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> He's done a lot of exploration in that area. And it was such an interesting sort of exploration and pointed example of like how to use types. And I, I think that's one of the things that I take away from Elm when I leave it is the type system ends up being this really expressive layer in which you can model things that are true about your domain. And a lot of times when I see people working with a type system for the first time, it's very much this mechanical, like, well, that's a string and this is an int. And I want to make sure I don't add a string and an int together, which is totally a useful thing. But that's just like the raw mechanics, the plumbing of your program. And I really like getting to the, the point where the type system is actually a place to model and say what's true about your domain, not just what's true about the types. And Elm does that incredibly well. And like the X and Y is an interesting example. And then at the start of every Elm program is just basically the list of different actions that can happen within your system. And that is so nice to have, that little thing up at the top. And then it also keeps you honest. So it ends up being this really interesting documentation layer that also is verified by the compiler. Definitely. I'm also really interested to walk back just a little bit when you're talking about refactoring the data model that you had or the data structure that you were using. Do you want to dive into the initial approach that you took to building the grid and then the refactored approach that you took? So the whole game basically lives on this grid space, or at least when you're interacting with it, it lives in this grid space. And we had done the initial data model with a list of list of tuples, where a tuple is like a pair of the interactor thing that might be there in the projectile. But so fundamentally, it's a list of lists. So trying to model that grid structure using the primitives that we have available. And that worked really well for rendering to the screen, for like getting into the view layer. But when we needed to do any updates, like when someone clicks on a cell, we then needed to traverse through those lists, find the right element, update it, 
but with Elm, we have immutable data structures, so we can't update it in place. We need to produce a new copy, and it became extremely cumbersome. And so what we ended up doing was refactoring to having an idea of the dimensions of the board and then separate lists for what are the interactors with their position and what are the projectiles with their positions. That was a big refactor, but it made it much easier to do any of the actual like gameplay mechanics. And then when it was time to render the board, we just had to do a little bit of manipulation of that data structure to get it back into the grid shape. Yeah. And y'all also did a really cool thing. So when that fireball or projectile or whatever we want to call it is gliding across those different grids and it's headed towards an interactor or something that's going to hit with ours. So with the one that Josh and I built, it's very clear that it's like in one cell and then the next and then the next, and it's a little bit choppy as it moves along. And then the version that you and Greg built, it glides across the top. So it looks like it's seamlessly moving across the grids. How did y'all do that? Uh, hacks and cheats, I would say. Uh, although, I mean, so we ended up implementing the app in both our case, I think, and in your case, just using HTML elements. So we weren't using Canvas or SVG or WebGL or any of the other like true drawing type APIs. And the reason for that was just the complexity. We were in a constrained time window. And so we didn't think that that was a reasonable thing to take on in the time that we had available. So yeah, we started with the grid structure and the snapping to that. And if we're being honest, this is probably where my competitiveness came through. Josh had already thought a little bit about the game and is just fundamentally better at Elm than the rest of us are. So he was just making so much more headway and implementing the features of the game. There's a bunch of different types of interactions that can happen and he had modeled all of them and had like could parse a game board and just do all sorts of stuff. And so I recognized that there was no way that we were even going to come close to implementing as much as you folks had. So I talked to Greg and I was like, what if we pivot and our entire focus for the rest of the thing is to make it animate smoothly and greg was a little bit hesitant on it because we only had like three hours left but it turns out we were able to get it done basically by just storing a percentage so each tick of the game loop we just move that percentage a little bit forward and then we animate using absolute and relative positions within the cells and we just move the thing a percentage within the cell and I didn't actually expect it to work as well as it does. It looks very smooth. I expected there to be some like discontinuities as something crosses a boundary between two cells. Like the percentage animation seemed like that would work, but then once it got to the edge, I expected it to kind of snap across, but it didn't. It blended together much more cleanly than I expected, and that was nifty. Yeah, I was really impressed. That was really cool. I think next that we should combine both of our code bases into one Perfect, awesome game. Uh, So Edward found out that we can grab all the game boards from the game and then download them so they kind of have the the grid layout. So then we can parse that grid layout and then there's 130 levels or something like that. So we could combine our 130 levels with your smooth, better designed game and it'd be really great. The best of all of the worlds. It would be interesting to see trying to blend the different, uh, like your model of the world was slightly different than ours. And I think we ended up refactoring to something that was a little closer to yours, but it was still different enough that somebody would have to refactor more. But I will say that's the other thing that I'm coming away from this is we were sort of rushing as we were doing it. It's a hackathon. You're not necessarily writing the cleanest code. But in the days that have followed, I've just been refactoring the app for fun, just nights and weekends style, not trying to do anything meaningful in the world, but it's it's actually just been this like almost meditative, uh, let me just go and change the data model again. Let me go clean this up. Let me add this new functionality. And the ability to take a sort of messy code base and make it better is much more achievable in Elm than I have found in any other language, really. That's cool that you found a place of Zen by mm. writing Elm. <laughs> 
Yeah, a number of people I noticed during Rafflepalooza had commented towards the end. They're like, well, I'm not proud of my code. And I was like, you don't have to be. Like, it's a hackathon. Like, the whole point is to get to free your mind and play with something new and not worry. What we normally always worry about is like, well, are we choosing the right tool for the team? We have to make sure this is extendable and someone else behind us can come along and work with this. And all those cares go away and we get to just write some code and have some fun. Yeah. Although now having had such a positive experience, and I think there are some very practical positives to using Elm, the question for me becomes like, when and where is it a good choice for production applications? And I'm hesitant to reach for it in most situations due to available pool of developers to hire from and and library availability, but I'm starting to question some of that, or at least I'm starting to explore it more. And uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that matter. No, I I think you and I have talked about this uh, before, too, because you and I both want to advocate for it more heavily with client teams, but we both feel a little skittish in doing so for the reasons that you just said. So I think it comes down to we're both excited about and we want to push this forward, but we still have reservations about doing that until we've perhaps built up some more content around helping others level up with Elm. Yeah, I think there's still a few hurdles to get there, but I think like taking time during a hackathon for us to get better at it is a, is a great step forward. So we'll feel more confident recommending it to others on their projects. So changing track just a little bit, the client application that I'm working on, we recently, I say we, the client team recently deleted the structure.sql file that we have in the Rails application. And I realized that this is the first time that I've worked on a Rails application where I don't have a schema or a structure file as a quick way to check to see what information is stored in the database, to see what columns I have available for a table. And it took me a little bit by surprise because then when it was deleted, because I think I was away that day that it was merged and then removed. And I came back and I was like, huh, I'm going to have to consider how I feel about this. So I'm curious, do you have any thoughts on this? Have you worked in a Rails application without a structure or a SQL file? I don't think I've ever worked on an app with it. As a consideration, this is enough outside of the norms that yeah, I've just not seen it, but I'm actually, I just opened up a Rails app here to take a look. And the 10th line in the schema.rb as generated is, it's strongly recommended that you check this file into your version control system. So that's like the core recommendation. And that matches to my understanding, but I'm now trying to back out and think through like, what are the ramifications? What does it mean? In reality, I'm pretty sure Rails reflects on the database at startup, like actually connects to the database, queries the tables and columns within it, and then uses that to do method missing and all of its fancy model magic. But I'm actually not sure that that's true. It might be doing things with the schema. And obviously it works. So it must be connecting to the database now that I say that. Yeah, I was going to agree with you that it must not be necessary. I would have agreed with you initially, but since I'm working in a production app that seems to be functioning just fine without it, it doesn't seem to be a necessary part of the application, which then makes me wonder if it's really more for just us for as we're doing development or if it's there as like a safety backup. So if something were to happen to your database, I've, I've never had that situation happen. And I don't know if that's how someone would choose to restore trying to gain back because hopefully there would be backups that someone would restore from instead. But yeah, I'm, I'm also just sort of intrigued by it. And the only pain that I've really felt so far, which not to minimize it because it, it is a bit painful, is every time I want to see what attributes, what columns, what indexes currently exist, mm. I can't open that file anymore. And oh, that's, that's been something that has been different for me 
which luckily there's the Rails DB console command that I can use, which will pop open Postgres. And then I can look around there, but then I have to do a few more commands. I have to actually like query for the information that I want. So it's making me brush up on some of my SQL skills. I'll say that. Now that I'm thinking about it more, what you were saying about, well, we're probably not restoring from this much, but I think we sort of are in that in local development that file is the file of record that in theory defines what the shape of the database is and we should be able to use it. Like I think often we'll use it on CI to quickly populate the test database, to quickly provide the structure to the test database. So we do DB schema load and that just reads directly from that file and, and loads it in as opposed to running through the migrations. Because now I believe the source of truth in this application, if they've deleted the DB schema and or structure.sql, the source of truth is the hist- like all of those migrations summed up. Which it's funny, I think in previous episodes, we've talked a bunch about deleting migrations as the like counterpoint to this. And I definitely want to have at least one of those. In theory, there is redundant information in having both. I've always just been happy to have both. If I were to consider deleting one, it would definitely be older migrations. But yeah, this is interesting. The lack of having that, having that defined, like that is the source of truth, not what's on production. That's an interesting one to me. The other one of... I do look at the DB schema constantly. I open that all the time and just take a look at what are the columns, who's nullable, who's not. So yeah, uh, what was the the reason for this change? So the only reason that I'm aware of, and I just haven't reached out to the individuals to find out more information, is they alluded to the fact that there's a lot of noise in keeping up with that file, and there doesn't seem to be much value that's coming from that file by having it there. And I do know that they'd migrated away from the schema file over to the structure.sql file because there are some features that can't be expressed in the schema file. So there's certain things like triggers and sequences, and I think perhaps like uh, stored procedures and check constraints that can't be supported in the Ruby file, but can be supported in the SQL file. So that one certainly made sense to me. But yeah, I'll have to reach out to them and find out a few more details to see if there's any other reason other than the noise that it was creating when we're running our migrations and then capturing that in the file. I guess I could see that to a certain extent. Typically, I find myself looking at the the changes, like the diff in the structure.sql or schema, and there's some value in that. But I've also had the times where like Rails changes the way it dumps it, or we have different Postgres versions. And so my Postgres is dumping it differently, like ordering is different, or the padding and co- like tries to do a column-based layout of the t.integer followed by the name, followed by null, false, and it tries to like move those as you get longer column names. I think they moved away from that in Rails for that reason. But the fact that there's this like auto-generated file that has a possibly changing shape that can introduce stiff noise, but I've definitely always found the value to be there and worth keeping, but yeah. Yeah, and you bring up two really good, interesting points, because now I'm curious when the tests are booting up, is the test suite running all the migrations? Like if it doesn't have the schema file to load from, then I'm very curious as to how the tests are running. I think DB test prepare under the hood will run DB schema load or something like that. So it does a DB create and then a DB schema load. I'm almost certain that the test would not run the migrations because we have the schema file. Why not just use that? We want to do this as quickly as possible and, and have a working version of things. But I don't actually know. Yeah, now that we're in a world where we don't have the schema file. Okay, I'll have to look into that. That's interesting. And then you brought up a a terrifying and good point. If teams are wanting to get rid of migrations or their schema file, and I certainly agree that I want one of those. And now we're in a world where we've sort of not locked ourselves in because we can always regenerate it. I guess that is one of the nice things. If we delete the structure schema file, we can always regenerate it and add it back in if we decide that at some point we prefer to delete some older migrations, but rely more heavily on that file. 
But yeah, I agree. I definitely want one of those in the code base and it is a bit painful not being able to hop in there. I also use it for PR review. So when folks are adding to the database, I typically will jump to the schema file just to validate that it translated into the SQL that I expect to get captured in that file. So that one's also a bit interesting to not have that anymore when I'm reviewing code. It's It's been okay so far. It's just I'm having to change my habits a bit. Well, to shift topics again, we have a listener question. It's actually, we've been somewhat uh, behind in getting to these. So again, thank you so much to everyone who sends these in. And this one comes from Joey Benninghove. And on Twitter, he reached out and asked us, how do you folks go about using FactoryBot as it relates to the, quote, default factory for each particular model? Does your default factory just populate the minimum required for that model? Or does it build more of a full-fledged model with associations, et cetera? So Steph, what do you think? What do you do? Oh, yeah. I like this question very much. I'm going to say yes. Minimum always is my typical approach. So if I'm building out a factory for a model, I'm going to build out the attributes that make that model valid. So anything that needs to be populated for that model to then be saved to the database, that's what I'm typically striving for in my default factory. And then if there's anything more specific that I would like to add, if it's perhaps something other than if I have a column that marks a user as admin and defaults to false, but I want a admin user, I will add a trait. So then that way I have my default user factory where admin is set to false, and then I'll have a trait that sets the user to admin being true. So that way I have a difference in those two. So anything that I'm adding to that user and sort of I don't know, I'm going to use the word decorating here, but anything that's decorating that user, which has a lot of heaviness to it, I'm going to start to find other ways to represent that structure with a trait. I agree with all of that pretty much 100%. Uh, I think the additional things that are built into FactoryBot that actually make this somewhat nice is that minimum viable thing that we're talking about is super critical because we don't want any tests to have to add more attributes than are pertinent to that particular spec. So we want it to only have to override and specify the data that we'll then be asserting against later on. But we've actually built something into FactoryBot to make that process easy. So there's a class-level method on FactoryBot called lint that you can run and in the docs, which we can uh, include a link to this particular point, we describe a quick rake task that you can write up and then you can run that as part of your test suite saying like, if you've now added a new required attribute to a model, but you've then forgotten to add it to the base factory, this will warn you in CI and tell you, nope, please do that, such that down the road, the next person that's interacting with that model or with that factory can have that positive experience of just overriding what they want. But then definitely let's go no further than that. So there's that perfect line of exactly what's necessary and no more. Yes, I love the term minimum viable factory because I want to have everything be as limited as possible in the factory. So as I'm building it out in the test, it's very explicit as to where those values are coming from and how they're different from the default factory. And there are times that even when I have values already set in the factory that I'm getting those for free, I'm going to explicitly set them again in the test because I want the reader to know exactly what that value is and why it matters. Yeah, I, I will do that same thing where even if the factory already has that value set for an attribute, if the test cares about that value, then I want it to appear in my test setup. And then that also decouples you from that default value. So if anyone is changing that over time, or if like we go from a certain string as the default, and then we want to change that for some reason, we can definitely do that. And our test will ideally be insulated from that change. So revisiting that question a little bit, they specifically asked about building a more full-fledged model with associations. So how do you feel about associations? How do you handle those? 
I think a similar logic would apply, although I, I realize that I'm probably a little bit freer in adding associations in. But on the flip side, I also use build stubbed a lot. Yeah, I think build stubbed is actually my go-to. So I'll use a create, write a test, and then I'll often go in and be like, I wonder if I could get get away with build stubbed here. And I'll just swap the create into a build stubbed. And then I'm like, yay, I got one for free. <laughs> I love how that's one for free. One less database call. <laughs> hey, it, it matters. They all add up. Yeah, saving all the database calls definitely matters. There are times where we do have a more like hefty model that we need to build or a bigger representation where if we have a user that has several important associations and we want to lean on our factories to build that up for us because we're going to be using it several times in our test. There are times where I have definitely seen where folks are building up a user with association and then that association has another association there may be another, a better example for this. Like perhaps if there's a user with a post and that post has comments and you want to build up all three of those in one go. So it's a user with post and three comments or something of that nature. Just talking about it out loud, I think in that particular example, I may still build those up independently of each other, but let's pretend we're in the situation where we do want a factory that can do all of that in one go. What are your thoughts on that particular approach? Because I know I've certainly felt pain whenever I've run into factories that do a lot of work like that. I similarly have mostly felt pain. There's a blog post that we can link to on the ThoughtBot blog that is factories should be the bare minimum. And I really like that adage. Uh, and actually, FactoryBot occasionally gets a bad name out in the community because I think it is used in a way that can lead to, well, I just wanted this thing, but by instantiating this thing, I get 100 other things. And I don't want that for my test. And so in the case, like, I believe that they should be the bare minimum, they should validate, but that's it, no more than that. Maybe some loose associations, because if we're being honest, that's probably a thing that I do, but I try and keep that minimum. And then if I do have a situation where I need a couple of collaborator objects, so I need the user and their posts and their comments, I'll introduce a helper method that can do that. And then there are ways to do that in a nice, flexible manner where you can accept various optional arguments in that helper method and allow it to be like, these are the things that will go to the creating of this or accept in the user or the post and allow those to be overridden. But I like to do that in the Ruby in like a test helper layer and not in the factories. I think it's a misuse of the factories and can cause them to grow. And then suddenly you're like, why are there 20,000 database calls in our test suite when we like, we definitely don't need that many database calls. And so trying to make those more specific, more explicit, more located with the tests that care about them. That's typically the approach that I'll take there. So I think the summary from that approach is don't do it when it comes to building up a larger model that does all of it, but instead use smaller helper functions in your tests that can help build them up independently. So we keep our factory small. Yes. Yeah, I guess you asked me a very direct question and then I just gave a long-winded indirect answer, but thank you for uh, summing it up there at the end because that is my stance on the matter. No, it's is a fabulous answer. I just wanted to summarize it because my feelings are the exact same. It's always amusing to me and hurts a little bit when I'm working in tests. And if there's a particular model that I'm building up, we'll keep going with the user and post and comments. And then I check and I'm like, well, I've only created one user that I know of, but I check to see how many users exist as I'm investigating. And if I check the user count, I'll have like six users. And I'm like, okay, who else is in my test that's creating all these users that I'm not aware of that I don't see happening. So I'm, I'm definitely a fan of using the smaller helper methods versus building those larger factories. Because once they're built, someone's probably going to come along and reuse it or tweak it. And it's just going to continue to grow and, and get a little out of control. Yep. 
It's interesting, as you say, like that you agree with me. I'm I'm not surprised. I think we tend to agree on most things. Although I'm I'm suddenly now thinking, I feel like we should do an episode where we talk about all the things we don't agree about. Got to like find those and then have an episode that's purely us like debating. Because I think most of the time we just agree on a lot of stuff. Oh, I like this. Okay, yeah, we should find stuff that we disagree on and have a debate. Mm. I'm down. <laughs> Cool. Well, with that, uh, should we wrap up? (laughs) Sure. Yeah, let's wrap up. Oh, and wish everybody a happy new year. Yeah, happy new year, everyone. Happy new year, folks. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. Really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at svicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for rejoining the Bike Shed in the new year, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, come discover a better way to work.